What if we could reimagine the traditional notion of a high flyer? Hey friends, welcome back or welcome to the High Flyers podcast where we do reimagine a high flyer, showcase the brightest and most relatable role models and companies and their journey from sunrise to today. As one of the premier products in our Curiosity Center lineup, providing on-demand intelligence, featuring Olympic athletes, business and cultural leaders, students, journalists, investors, founders, and more from around the world to help you be 1% better every single day. I'm your host, Vita Tagawal, and let's have some fun. Today, in this episode 125, I'm speaking with Eitan Linko. Think of this episode in two parts, with the first being a deep dive into Eitan's life influences and career decisions, and the second half being a deep dive into his love affair with climate solutions and technology, how it started first at Beyond Zero Emissions, and more recently as CEO of Boundless, the non-for-profit on a mission to make Australia a renewable energy superpower by 2030, backed by Atlassian co-founder Mike Cannon-Brooks. Learn about Eitan's sunrise in Melbourne, his Jewish heritage, and the influences of his father, a chemical engineer and entrepreneur, and mum, a nurse turned a cosmetic sale extraordinaire, and his three sisters. We cover his career track, especially how he went from software engineer to CEO, and founding two companies along the way, and influences living in Japan, Darwin, and the UK. I loved every minute of this. Eitan is candid, passionate, and really lives up to our ethos of open direct access, and it's a masterclass in the climate solutions today and how Eitan and his team are using the epic way of working to create 100,000 new jobs in the space today. It's now time to explore your curiosity. Please enjoy. Eitan Lenko, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Nice to have you on. Why don't we start with some fun facts to set the scene? Where were you born and where do you live now? I was born in beautiful Melbourne, in Clayton specifically, and I still live in Melbourne. But yeah. I've lived, lived in other places in between. You have, and that's something that's come up in my research, so we will get into that. And from a work perspective, what was your first job and what do you do now? So my very first job was uh, working at Kentucky Fried Chicken out the back, cooking the chicken, trying not to get burnt by the oil. But my first professional job out of uni, I, I studied uh, software engineering and, um, and um, computer science. And my first job was as a, as a software engineer working for a company called ManageSoft, which built software that helped large companies deploy software out to their tens of thousands of, of computers and, and manage those computers. And how would you describe your role now at Boundless? So yeah, now I'm the CEO of Boundless and, and Boundless is a uh, not-for-profit that has a mission to um, ensure that Australia is on track to being a renewable energy superpower by 2030, and we can get into what a renewable energy superpower means. And we deploy uh, philanthropy, investments, and um, and we can also use direct advocacy to achieve those goals. Uh, and we're backed by Mike Cannon-Brooks. He's our chair, and, and, and at Boundless is an initiative that came out of his climate pledge that he made um, a year and a half ago. Mm, very cool. We'll get into some of those things later in the conversation. And Eitan, as you know, the purpose of this show is to reimagine a high flyer. Is there a high flyer that you know that you feel hasn't got the recognition they deserve? Wow, that's a, that's a, a great question. Um, I mean, in, I think in, in at Boundless, we have an amazing uh, chief of staff, Caroline Vu, and um, I think... What Caro has shown me is just the, the, the leverage kind of multiplier that, an, multiplier that an amazing chief of staff brings to a role. And I know there's tons of chiefs of staffs out there, um, you know, who are supporting their kind of CEOs and founders and really enabling them to do 10 times the amount that they would have otherwise. So just a shout out to all the chiefs of staff out there. Yeah, big shout out to Caro. She helped me a lot with research for this episode and gave me some really cool stories that people might not know about about you. So <laughs> we'll see if we can cover some of those. <laughs> and I'd love to zoom back and go to your sunrise, Eitan, your childhood. And you mentioned growing up in Melbourne. Tell us about that. What are your memories of your environment and the influence of family? Yeah, so I, I grew up in Melbourne. Um, I, I come from a Jewish 
family and, and something that I don't know probably most people don't realize about Melbourne is that most of the Jewish population in Melbourne um, came after World War II and were you know most of them were Holocaust survivors so my grandparents um, you know both survived um, concentration camps and lost most of their family um, in World War II um, and I was the uh, my, my dad was an only child and um, you know I was the firstborn in my family so you know I had a very close uh, relationship growing up with my grandparents they lived around the corner and then after me I've got um, three younger sisters as well so we had a you know been surrounded by by women uh, most of my life so just always been aware of how amazing uh, women are and you know how they're definitely the superior uh, gender yeah, wow, three sisters. That would have been interesting. Were you, were you like the one that had to look after them or were they all independent and they had their own lives from day dot? <laughs> oh, I'd love to tell you what an amazing protective brother <laughs> I was, but I was a bit of an asshole uh, probably to my younger, to my younger sisters. Um, but, yeah, I think we, we've all become amazing friends and, and, and we're all very close and we've all got kind of, you know, a, a shared sense of humour and a quirky outlook on life so yeah we, we get along really well mm. and you mentioned your parents i wonder if you can share what did they do for work so my dad actually he was a, uh, a, a trained as a as a chemical engineer at uni and but he became you know interestingly as as computers became more a thing he became fascinated by computers and software and he went back to university to train um, as a programmer and he was one of the early programmers at the National Australia Bank, and then he went off to, to form his own company that built kind of accounting software and then sold, um, you know, computer equipment, some of the first mobile phones that were like, you know, the size of your whole car boot. Mm-hmm. So growing up, you know, I always had computers in the house. I remember being five years old and hassling my dad to, to show me, um, you know, on this green screen data general um, mini computer that he had at home, like, you know, a game, and it was like some text-based game and I was just blown away that this um, you know piece of technology in the house you could play games on I remember waking up one morning before dad was awake and you know computers weren't really user-friendly in those days and and um, I, I don't know just somehow was so determined to play this game that I somehow worked out and remembered the, the, the commands that he typed in to make this game work and it was just like this amazing feeling that I managed to get this game to, to start up and load um, you know without my dad being there so yeah that that's my my dad um really kind of kick-started my my interest in computers and and technology and mum did she have much of an influence on your upbringing yeah definitely my my mum was uh it it was a nurse when i was growing up she was born in in israel and she came over to australia her and my dad were actually pen friends and after one of the wars they had over there um he invited her to come over for a bit of a break um because she'd had an, an intense time, you know, being a nurse during the war. Uh, and she came to Australia and they, and they fell in love and, and she ended up staying in Australia. Um, and so she worked as a nurse in Australia. But then she, she um, you know, my mum's an amazing, she can, she can talk to anyone. She's actually a natural born salesperson. Mm-hmm. And she got involved with um, Nutramedics, you know, the, um, the cosmetics yep. brand. And she very quickly built, a, built a, an amazing business and, and was selling, you know, more cosmetics. Um, you know, she was earning more of an income from the cosmetics than she was um, as a nurse. Um, so she she quit nursing and took that on full time. And I just remember just every time we'd go into a milk bar or whatever, she'd start talking to the person behind the counter, manage to convert them into a salesperson for her or sell them some stuff. But so, you know, I think from her, like the idea of um, sales and, and communications and persuasion being, you know, a key to being really important in life, you know, so it's really important. I think that combination of, um, you know, has served me really well of understanding technical things, but also the importance of how you how you try to bring people um, along with you and, and the importance of communication. You've taken the words out of my mouth. That's what I was going to say is one of the things Caro mentioned and a few others spoke to is that you've got this awesome balance of having that engineering mind which probably comes from your dad but an ability to change context work with governments work with business and you were an engineer um, and you built a couple of businesses so that's that's fascinating and and i think your other point about being fascinated by computers and technology early on would you say that was a big influence at a young age where you weren't too focused on parties or going out and and being social you were more to yourself and with your gadgets 
I did. I did. <laughs> I did like going out. Okay. That's that. uh, yeah, I was definitely on the geeky side, let's face it. Um, <laughs> but I always had like a really optimistic view. My dad was always really into, you know, space and technology and all that sort of stuff about, you know, he read a lot of science fiction and I, I'd read his old science fiction books. So I always had this um, optimistic view of technology that it was something we could use to make the world better. Um, you know, so now as we, as you know, climate change is like a good example of technology, you know, having side effects that can make the world worse. But I think still with my optimistic viewpoint, you know, the solutions for climate change, you know, like many of them lie in, in good applications of technology. And if we do it right, we can have a better world than, than what we had before we used those technologies. So, um, yeah, I think I was, yeah, that, 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 that was that influence um, on technology has led, I think, to that to that optimistic view. Yeah, it reminds me of a previous guest we had on, Nikki Shavak of Blackbird fame, and he spoke about getting a, a router, a Wi-Fi router when he was a kid, and that changed his trajectory, and he was just really influenced by yeah. by that, and, and he's, he's doing all right for himself now in the technology world <laughs> today. So great, great how that influence plays out. And if you fast forward, Eitan, to when you were 18, where you've got some understanding of the world, what was success at that age? What did you want to do with your life? Yeah, I wasn't really sure. I mean, I knew I wanted to work in technology. So I was, you know, signed up to do science and engineering at university. I took a year off and I was, um, I went to Israel for a year and worked in like an archaeological dig. And I had my, my mum's parents and cousins over there. So I went to spend a bit of time uh, with them. You know, I grew dreadlocks. I, I lived on a kibbutz <laughs> for a while. Um, so it was a good, it was really actually really good for me to have a year away from computers and technology and that sort of thing. Cause that was the days before that was 1994. So it was before, you know, the very early days of the internet. So, you know, I didn't really have, have access to it. Didn't have a mobile phone, you know, I'd fax letters or, or send letters to my parents kind of thing. So it really was a, a year off for technology, which for me, having grown up with computers, uh, was amazing. And it, and it really opened my eyes to travel, to other experiences, to like, you know, the importance of, um, you know, building really strong social networks and, and talking to other people, um, you know, and living on kibbutz is that kind of really um, idealistic lifestyle where the whole community is kind of working together and you're getting up at five o'clock in the morning and milking the cows and then you all have breakfast together in a, in a dining room. So it really is this socialist utopian lifestyle and it was out, out in the desert in, in the south of Israel. So, you know, that, that year had a huge impact on my life and a lot of the friends that I made over that year uh, are still like, you know, really good friends today. I must say Israel is on the top of my list of places to visit. So I'm Indian heritage and there's a lot of commonalities between Indian culture and Israeli culture and even the religions of Hinduism and, and Jewish cultures. And it's a beautiful place. And that was probably my question leading up to this is how is culture and, and almost that Jewish religion influenced you? Because I saw on your Profile, I think you do a lot of work with the Jewish community now, both in the business side, and I imagine even with your own kids, you want them to continue on that Jewish tradition. It's a really rich culture. Has that shaped you in any way when you think back to your early life in terms of your beliefs in, in the world today? Yeah, uh, 100%. Like, so I think, especially growing up with, um, you know, parent, uh, grandparents that have been through the Holocaust. So, you know, that was a really, wasn't some abstract theoretical thing you know they didn't talk about it a lot because obviously it, it was very traumatic but it was always it was always there and you get snippets of kind of stories and, and later in life I met some other people that had been um, in the camp with with my grandfather and told told me stories about him so you know from that I kind of got this sense of you know life is life is precious things can change really quickly you know you've got to take take your opportunities as they as they come because you never know what what can happen the next day and, and, you know, what it takes to create a sense of security and family and, and also to be grateful, you know, for what we have, you know, I just had to kind of picture myself, you know, growing up somewhere safe and, and prosperous like Melbourne and comparing that, you know, comparing to what my grandfather was going through um, at, a, at a similar age or my grandmother. And so it's like, okay, it's very easy to feel grateful and have perspective on, on where we're at. But I think also growing up in the Jewish community, especially in Melbourne, you know, it's it's pretty small. Um, people know each other. 
you know, education is always like a really highly valued thing. So, you know, parents, um, you know, prioritise putting their kids through um, private schools or getting education um, in other ways. So, you know, it's a highly educated community. And so that that combination of kind of, you know, well-networked and well-educated means that you've got, you know, if you need to talk to somebody about someone, it's not that hard to find someone who you can call to, to talk to them about if you want to uh, get a legal view on something or if you want to understand, um, you know, anything. Like, you know, it, it wouldn't be, it's not, not that many um, people, of, uh, you know, um, degrees of separation mm. from you to find the, the person that you want to talk to, which I think is, was, was really helpful. So, um, and then there's all, the, all the, the, the normal Jewish customs, so, you know, the Jewish festivals and stuff like that. But the, the most important one to me is, um, you know, the custom of having a Friday night dinner mm. with your family. So even as you're growing up and going to university and you're going out, like we'd always all, me and my sisters and my parents would always come together um, to have dinner on a, on a Friday night. And that, you know, just maintains that, that connection with your family and just keeps you really grounded. And, you know, no matter, you know, if you're doing something amazing at work, whatever, you know, you know, you're still going to come home on Friday night and have an argument with your sisters about something. <laughs> or, you know what I mean? So... <laughs> Um, yeah, so for me, it's been it's been um, it's been amazing, and it's just provided, I guess, like this base of kind of security um, that's given me a really great platform to build to build from. Back to the episode in a moment. We've been very fortunate to feature some of the brightest and most relatable minds, including Nick Crocker from Blackbird Ventures in episode forty-eight, Heaps Normal co-founder Andy Miller in episode fifty-one, and recently Wyatt Roy the youngest government minister ever in episode 119, all there waiting for you. It's a beautiful culture. Like I, I often wonder what do I need to do to get more immerse myself into that Jewish culture in Israel and even Elston Wick in, in Melbourne where I've got a lot of friends who and there's a big Jewish um, influence there. I want to go into some of your magic moments, Eitan, and maybe the one a good one to start with is you talked about your year in Israel and then I imagine you came back to Melbourne and you said you did your software engineering, computer science degree. Did you did you always have that path following that to go and become a software engineer? Because I think you, you were a software engineer for about six, six or seven years after your university degree, right? Oh, for more than that, yeah, for probably okay. like I finished in 2000. I started my company, which was a software company um, in 2009. And so that... Yeah, it was always, I always saw software, you know, A, something interesting um, and something where you can be uh, creative. Like I was always interested in, in, in creative pursuits as well. Like, you know, I, I liked drawing and, and writing and, and those sorts of things. Um, but I, I found software as, you know, that was a, a place where you could be creative in a really practical way because obviously you're building stuff that's hopefully useful. Um, but I think I'm... I don't know if it's a positive magic moment, but a, definitely a moment was, you know, after doing university for five years, um, getting my getting my first job um, and turning up to work on the first day and just realising that I had no idea <laughs> about actual software engineering in, in the real world and, um, you know, what it took to actually build real software that, that um, customers are going to use. You know, university, at least in those days, was all relatively theoretical. You know, you learnt about how to do... Um, you know, 3D animation um, algorithms or like fuzzy logic or like stuff like that, but not about how to, how to what it takes to really work in a team and build well-tested, well um, efficient software. So just realising that I had to go back and relearn kind of everything and spend a year actually learning how to be a software engineer on the job um, was a big moment for me. And, and it, I think, I guess the through line for that is the difference between... Um, academic learning and learning through doing and I've just really <laughs> believe that learning through doing is you know obviously you've got to you've got to learn the basics but you know learning through doing is, is the way that you get things done and you know if you once you come across into climate and renewables you know it's what we've learned is it's much more about deployment and doing the thing that's how you learn what it takes to build big solar farms or manufacture um, wind turbines whatever you only you only get better at it and bring the cost count down through doing and I think that's the same in, in a lot of things in life one of the things that I reflect on in my career and I've had a much shorter career than you to date is early on I chased big companies and 
a good salary and wanted to make my parents happy and wanted to go to a party and tell my friends that, look, hey, I'm working at this big corporate. And, and I worked at a couple of startups, but now I look back and I learned the most of the startups, but I never got the social validation working out of a house at some random company and having to explain the whole story at a party. And it really made me insecure. What was that like for you? Because I imagine even like that Jew, back to Jewish culture, it would be easier to work at a big company and go home and tell your parents and go, hey, Tan, you're doing so well. Look at you, so successful. Yeah. When was that first love affair with startups? When did that start? Well, it's funny. I, might, I think my whole family had been relatively entrepreneurial. So my grandfather was an architect. My grandmother um, had a clothing store. You know, my dad, he had worked at corporates like NAB um, and the, the National Bank, but he never told good stories about it. It was always about how they didn't get, you know, like he he's, was much happier when he was running his own company. Um, and my mum was working in the hospitals and didn't love that. And then she she went out on her own um, selling cosmetics. So I saw that it was a, I had a lot of role models that showed that it was possible and, you know, it wasn't as big risk, um, you know, as you might think it would be to go out on your own. But also I just didn't have a great um, impression in my head. And w- when I was finishing uni, you know, I did, I did well in my course, I got honours, so, um, you know, I was applying for jobs and I remember going out for interviews at, um, at Hewlett Packard and Bosch and these big corporates. And it was just this crazy interview process where, you know, they got get 20 graduates together and put you into teams and ask you to do ridiculous tasks like jumping over a river or things like that. And they'd be standing around with note, notepads, you know, <laughs> making notes on how you're doing. And I'm like, what? like it's like being a bloody uh, rat in a, in a lab kind of thing. And I'm like... It's just not for me. It's just, I'm just not. I'm not the world's best um, employee. I need to be. I need to feel like I've got power of my own uh, destiny and, and a purpose and, and those sorts of things. And I think that mm. just. But also recognised. I didn't feel like I had the knowledge and the skills to just to be one of those person people straight out of uni that just goes out and starts a company kind mm. of thing. So I, I was looking for that 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 middle ground of a of a smaller company that was doing interesting things that would let me kind of develop and. Yeah, not not treat me as a number. And you did create two companies, Snaps and Solve and Outward Mobile. I won't ask you about how you started it and, and what you did, but maybe a better question to summarize it is, what did you learn from those two experiences? Because they're both fundamentally different businesses, but maybe the, like one of the common perceptions is starting a business for the second time is easier because you've learned, you've made mistakes, you've got some gray hairs and, and you sort of know how the world works. But were there any highlights or even painful learnings out of those two startups that you've taken with, with you in your role since? Uh, yeah, well, I think the most, like, obviously I have a technical background and we started Outware and Outware was like, you know, one of the early app development companies in Australia that went on to develop, you know, most of the main corporate apps in Australia. So the internet banking apps and the Qantas app that you use to check in and the AFL and NRL sports apps. So, you know, that to, to be able to do those things and what was exciting about mobile development then is that it was a really technical thing. Like mobile software development wasn't like web development, which was a lot more template based. You actually had to code in Objective-C in a C style language. You needed to understand proper software engineering. So I think by, by bringing people with real technical skills together, you had an edge in that space. And so I was, I was obviously comfortable on the technical side of things. Clearly, uh, what, a, what a, someone that's been working in engineering as an engineer doesn't know a lot about is people management um, and how you, you help a team to perform. And, you know, to be honest, I was never one of those people that was super excited about that stuff, you know, I didn't go out and read fifty, you know, management books and understand the best way of managing. Like you, know, you start at the beginning and you treat people, um, you know, well and as friends, and you hire smart people and assume that that they'll do the right thing. And then obviously the team grows. And I, and I think what happened, what, one of my first real learnings was I think the team got to about um, thirty people. We had all this work coming through. We're on project after project, and and. Um, you know, I wasn't, the team was big enough now that I wasn't on the, on the tools anymore and I wasn't directly working with people and staff be coming up to me and going like, what's the point? What's the point of this place? Like, is it just to make money and, and, you know, do project after project? Because we're feeling bit, you know, we've done five projects on a row, the six, here's the sixth one, here's the seventh one. Is that what it is? And I was like, yeah, we, we hadn't, what is the, the, the mission and the purpose of this company. I'd always thought that stuff was, was crap, you know, that the people come up with values and missions and all that sort of stuff. I just thought that was kind of like, 
you know, just not corporate <laughs> talk. And yeah, I realized, oh, actually, yeah, it's true. A company does have to have a purpose. And, and in our minds, the founders' minds, we, we had a purpose for this company um, that was beyond just making money. But um, we hadn't done any of the, the work to kind of communicate that, to get the team around that. Um, and so what was good in a way was that we had the opportunity to bring the team on that journey with us. So we ran a number of all-day workshops. We all talked together about what our vision for the company could be, what we'd love, like to be, what the values, uh, you know, what does it make, you know, we call them, you know, an outwearian, what, what makes a good um, outwearian. And it was so awesome doing that together with the whole team. And it was amazing after we put that out there, how all of those questions sort of died down and never came up again. And the productivity of the company went through the roof and great ideas were, were, were coming through because we had this shared um, idea of, of what this company is and, and where we were going. And, you know, as you grow again, you get, you obviously have further, you know, need to refine that and you have other problems, but that idea that just by having a shared vision and painting a picture of what, what the future could be, people, kind of almost magically align with that is something that that um, has really served me well in all the, you know, both I've, I've started um, for-profit companies, but I've also started a number of, of non, non-profit organisations. Um, and now it's like one of the first things you do is like, what is the vision of this place? Mm. What's the world that we're trying to, to, to create through this? And it's, um, yeah, that's, that's always helped so much, I think, bring an, an amazing team on board. So tell us, how does one go from an engineer to a CEO? Like, did you have, did you invest in that learning? Did you have mentors who helped you, or was it just organic and you just chased opportunities and things that happened? Uh, yeah, I mean, you, you go step by step. Like, you know, I had, I had two amazing co-founders. I was uh, one of them was like super technical Gideon, so he had a, a PhD in artificial intelligence before. You know, that was cool kind of thing. And my other co-founder, Danny. Came from had had more of a sales background, and so I had this. You know, I'd been living in London. I'd been working as a consultant, a technical consultant. So I had a bit of you know, I had technical capability, but I'd also been in sales meetings and, and could you know um, communicate relatively well. So it just kind of fell to me to kind of be in the middle of those things. So we had sales and we had tech kind of covered, and then it was kind of everything else, project management, um, the whole strategy, all that sort of stuff, kind of fell to me, um, and. Yeah, I think you just had to step up. So I definitely read books about um, strategy and what makes a good strategy and what makes a bad strategy, you know, making sure that we that we uh, really thought deeply about the way that we work and, and implemented process when we were doing things over and over again. I think you kind of get into those sorts of things and then that kind of naturally leads you, you know, covering HR, all those sorts of things. And then you're kind of getting into the essence of what a CEO role is, which is really kind of holding the vision um, for the company and, and where you're going and making sure there's kind of alignment throughout that through your HR practices and the way that you treat people and the way that you incentivize people. So yeah, those are the things that I was thinking about a lot amongst all the other million things. And I think that's, you know, once you're thinking about that, you're effectively a CEO. I get the sense and, and Caro mentioned this is you're very good at going into a new environment and changing context. And in this one, you mentioned you're in a new country or you'd been in London, you're in a role, you're in a growing company and you've done that since with your different roles which we'll talk about. How do you go into a new environment and figure out what are the challenges or rally a team together? And Are there any, I know it's not a manual, you can't put that into a bullet point step-by-step approach, but are there any things that you've learned through, again, making mistakes because that's how most of us learn that, that have helped yeah. you rally a team and go into a new environment either to set a strategy or to transform a strategy? Yeah, I mean, I've definitely made the mistake of, um, you know, I guess not not trusting people and, and getting into that micro manager mode a bit sometimes, and that just never, you know, that's that's never achieves a good outcome. So you know, now when I when I start something up, it's really about hiring people that you can trust in the core team, and and people that that you that you that you find credible and that you think are amazing at what they do and then giving them a lot of rope to kind of help set things up themselves. So going back to that, that, that um, experience I had at Outwear where the whole team came together to jointly create the vision of the company, it was similar at Boundless. So when we, when I was talking about the strategy of it with Mike, you know, we came up with the vision of what we wanted Boundless to be. So our mission is to have Australia on track to being a renewable energy superpower and that we wanted to be able to do philanthropy investing 
and, um, and direct advocacy. And that was kind of as far as I wanted to go thinking it through without a team. You could keep going and come up with the whole strategy in one year and five year and whatever year plans. And I'm like, you know what, we've, we've, we've worked out enough. Now let's get the heads of investment, philanthropy and advocacy. Let's find great people for those roles. And then, then we'll be in a position where we can jointly work out how this thing's going to work and how we're going to operate and all that sort of stuff. And, and that's what we did. Um, and, you know, so we've got incredible buy-in from the team because they, they jointly created this. So, you know, as soon as there's kind of misalignment or we've got a disagreement on, you know, one a specific thing that we do, we can always, we, there's that trust and, 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 you know, understanding that we're all shooting for the same thing. So we can have a, a rational conversation about the best way to get there, but we're not second guessing each other. Like this person fundamentally thinks that what we're doing isn't right because we did it all together. So, you know, that's the way I love to set things up now, rather than just saying, here's the big idea. This is my thing. You know, this is what it's going to be kind of thing. Um, because then it really just is lonely at the top. It's just kind of huge kind of driving. Mm. And then if it doesn't work, it's, it's on you, right? You've got to explain yeah. why it didn't work. So. <laughs> <laughs> <That's> <laughs> <fine>. <laughs> One thing you talked about there, which, which I think might be interesting that maybe people might not give you as much credit for is because you had been a founder, you probably can preempt what someone like a Mike in terms of working relationships looking for, because you've been in those shoes, you've been a founder, you've been someone who's very energetic and hungry and has a desire to just get shit done. Do you think that helped you, that experience now where you're a CEO and you're working within a startup? Whereas if you'd been a corporate executive all your life and you'd come into this role, your definition of hustle probably might be a bit different. Is that, is that a fair assumption? Yeah, definitely. We, I mean, we at Outwear, as we got bigger and we were building out our executive team, we did hire a few people from, you know, banks or government that had what looked like on paper, amazing experience, running big teams, doing exactly the thing that we wanted them to set up at Outwear. And they almost universally um, struggled in, in a startup environment because, you know, they always had people around them to do a lot of the stuff and weren't as, you know, didn't want to get into the actual doing themselves. And also we're just working on totally different uh, timescales. So, you know, one of the things I, I'm just hypersensitive to in interviews is when I'm asking somebody about their experience at an interview, um, you know, when their answer is kind of, well, we did this and we did that kind of thing. It's like, I'm, I'm totally not interested in the we. I want to hear the I, like, what did you do? Kind of mm. thing, not the, what did we do? Um, and so uh, I think that that sense of what does it take to get something done? Like there's so many times um, in my experience at Outwear where you had a, a, a timeline that was impossible, you know, you couldn't get there, but you had to get there. There was no kind of choice. You know, you're working for a big client. There was some, you know, reason why that timeline had to be hit. And you just kind of make it happen. You kind of prioritize, you work extra hours, you do what it takes. You know, you've got to realize when are the really important things to get things done and which are the things that, 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 you, that do have arbitrary timelines that, that you can push out. Um, and, you know, that might only happen a few times a year that you've got these really important um, situations that it's important to get right. But, you know, I think founder um, CEOs kind of ha have the scars to know, to, to kind of identify which are the things that are really important, which are the things that are kind of fatal or like, you know, going to really push your company or organisation forward and you've got to throw everything at it. Um, and I think in big corporate environments, you don't probably have those experiences as much where things are kind of like on that knife edge, you're that do or die kind of situation. Um, and so I think that's what drives people to develop that ability to just get shit done sometimes because when you don't have a choice, you kind of have to get it done. Mm, absolutely. I want to spend the next part of the conversation on your climate journey. But before I get to that, I think one thing that I haven't asked you yet about is while you're doing all these experiences, what were the life experiences like as well? Like we talked about work, but... I believe you've got three kids and I imagine your partner's probably played a role here as well. And, and you mentioned earlier about your travel with living in Japan and, and Darwin and, and the UK. How is that? It's a broad question, but how has that shaped you in terms of just your awareness of yourself as a dad, as a father, as a husband, but also just the world being not just being locked in Australia, but you've seen so many different cultures. Has that also influenced you in terms of how you think now? Yeah, I think when you travel a lot, you see um, Australia not as just the reality kind of thing. Like you understand there's different ways to live and there's different things to do. Like, you know, overseas people 
live in apartments with their whole family and they, that means there's, you know, it can be tighter, but there's all these benefits because, you know, it means um, bars and restaurants are open till later or people are riding around their bikes. You know, there's different ways to do things. It's not just one way to do things. To, to do things and if one country can do it one way then you know it's possible to change the way another country does things you know there's a whole system that keeps things in place but it's possible to start tinkering away in that so it kind of made me feel like the world is a lot more malleable uh, than it seems to be I think for someone that's that's stayed in one place for a long time um, and then yeah family I mean like uh, I met my wife at my 30th birthday party I just got back from from living in London for five years and I had a 30th birthday and she gate crashed it. And <laughs> so, um, I met her there and um, we actually, we got married a couple of years later and we spent our honeymoon year traveling. We spent a year um, traveling around the world, which is a mm. great way to get to know someone for mm. good, for good or, or, or for yeah. bad. Um, <laughs> you really get to know them. Um, and then, you know, I started, I started out where uh, the business and we had our first um, kid, our son, our son um, a couple of years after that, and so I really was growing um, outward at the same time as as I was growing my family, and I was also on my I started my climate journey that same year as well. So 2009 was a pretty um, you know high you know big milestone year in my life, um, and it was just kind of interesting watching all of those things kind of grow and and develop, and definitely um, having kids while you're thinking about climate and you're thinking about technology. Um, really makes things makes things real and puts a lot of urgency uh, behind what you're doing because again it's like this it's, it's not this abstract kind of thought you've got these um, you know being little creatures that you love that that you want to have a good life you know my my you know having my grandparents in the Holocaust you know it was you know pretty clear you know they they worked hard uh, you know for for my parents and then my parents had had us and you've kind of had this. Uh, really deep thing that every generation had a better life um, than the one before. And, you know, this climate was like, well, is, are my kids going to actually have a better um, better life than, than we did? So, um, yeah, it made everything a lot more real. Back to the episode in a moment. If you're a new listener and wondering, what is the Curiosity Centre? This podcast is one of our premium products, but we have more, including the Association Series newsletter, seven-star events, and investment. Access the Curiosity Center today, the platform for on-demand intelligence with the world's best. Mm. Let's let's go into that period in 2009 and your first sort of date with, with climate. I think it was beyond zero emissions is, is what my research tells me. Yeah, take us inside that. How does somewhere, again, we talked about engineer to CEO transition. How does someone go from being a, yeah, building a SaaS business or a, sort of traditional technology business to going climate in 2009 i think climate was not the sexy space it is today it was it was probably you probably had to go against the grain a little bit i imagine so take us inside that 2009 was a bit of a climate um because we had you know in australia kevin rudd was elected in 2007 and he said um you know climate what was the biggest moral issue of our time and so there was a whole debate around the carbon tax and those sorts of things so it was it was a moment for climate. It was around then that the Al Gore Inconvenient Truth movie came out, which I think I saw and, and it um, freaked me out. And, you know, so I was, I was starting a business. It kind of had new starts in life. I was thinking about what else am I passionate about? Um, and climate was like, you know, I, I was I was worried about it. So it's like, okay, well, time to educate myself and understand what you can do. So I was like, well, what, what can an engineer, how can an engineer contribute? You know, you can go and volunteer um, at a climate organization or an environment organization, and you can kind of um, stuff envelopes with flyers and stuff like that, but it doesn't seem like the best use of an engineer's time. And so I just happened to go to, in Melbourne, there was, you know, it's a long running um, festival called the Sustainable Living Festival, um, you know, that has a number of speakers and, and um, you know, stalls and all that sort of stuff. So I thought I'll go there and, and learn what's going on. And there was a speaker there who was one of the, the founders of this new organization called Beyond Zero Emissions. And he was talking about, you know, we know that we have to get our emissions down to zero. We know that electricity is, is the biggest source of emissions um, in Australia, and it should be the easiest thing to decarbonize because we're starting to see the technologies like solar and wind uh, that can do that. But 
everyone says it's impossible. In 2009, um, the common thinking then was that you could maybe get to 20% of the grid being renewable, but that was probably about as far as, as you could go. And he was like, well, that, that's not true. You know, let's, let's get a bunch of engineers together and let's literally work it out. We can design the grid that we want to see. We can model it out against the weather. Um, we can work out how much steel and concrete, concrete and how many jobs you'd need. Let's see if it's actually, let's work out, is it possible or not? And I'm like, that's amazing. That's, that's, um, that's a way an engineer can contribute. So I kind of got in touch with them um, and started volunteering a few days a week um, to help out with that. And pretty quickly, you know, my, my engineering background of software wasn't super conducive um, to a lot of the research that they were doing. But, you know, I, I loved that project. And so the way that I got involved was in translating effectively what the um, technical engineers and all the technical outputs they were making into kind of like um, documents that, that were meant to communicate that solution to lay people. So basically a translator between the, the engineering um, and what we're actually trying to achieve. Um, and so, yeah, that's what I was doing initially while I was building up um, Outwear. So I was working a few a day a week at, at Beyond Zero Emissions. And then that report actually was called the Zero um, Carbon Australia Stationary Energy Plan. It was launched by Malcolm Turnbull, um, now our ex, our ex prime minister in, in Sydney in front of 1,200 people. And it was this huge moment because it changed the narrative from it's not possible to um, it's possible, but it's expensive kind of thing, which it was back in 2000 and back in 2009. But it was like, wow, that, that we really did change the, the way people thought about this in Australia. Now people aren't saying it's impossible anymore. Now the debate's about, you know, how much does it cost and how long would it take? Fair enough. But that's a step, that's a big step forward. And it's just, it took a bunch of engineers to kind of have that, again, that shared vision for the future to make that happen. Mm. If you go deep into one of the status quos with climate and, and philanthropy as well is thinking in multiple years, intensive, deep strategies, put together a report, provide a strategy and then work on it for, for a long period. And, and one thing that Kara said to me in, in the conversation prior to this is you came up with the epic way of working where you broke things into epics in a specific part of strategy and then you'd break it down, find the right team and then how to execute on it. Can you talk about how that works and why you felt that was better than thinking in multiple years? Yeah. Well, so Beyond Zero Emissions used to do, think in that multiple years. And so when they did, you know, the next reports after station energy, so transport or buildings, whatever, they would really try to work out the, the complete plan for how you would do that. And those, those plans would take two years to do. Um, and then sometimes they would hit the mark and have an impact. And sometimes, you know, they would just get released and no one would even pick it up and it's like oh wow that was two years of work for mm. not, not a huge amount of impact um, so it had that that experience and obviously in software um, you know I went through that transition in software from the waterfall approach where you're building really like I remember when we did our first project with Telstra um, at Outwear you know we had the first meeting um, with the team there and this guy came in literally with 200 a pay, printed page kind of massive folder and he's like dropped it on the desk and he's like, all right, here's the, um, here's the requirements for this project, you know, go well and do it. And it's like, what, the, what, do you, what do you do with that kind of thing? And that's why software used to always take, you know, have cost overruns and take, take so long to produce. And that's where the agile uh, software development methodology came out of, like how do you break these things into much smaller chunks so you can do them, test them, get feedback, adjust your plan if you need to and, and build something that's actually fit for purpose. But more importantly, what I found in, in, with Agile was that it meant that the whole team was coming together, was communicating, was deciding every week what their priorities were. And you got this real sense of um, momentum and, and it really helped morale and, uh, in the team. And so I guess when we, were, we, when we had the team together for Boundless and we'd hired our first people and we sat down um, and we were like, all right, how are we gonna do this? We've got this huge mission. We've got to get Australia, towards being a renewable energy superpower? Like, do we start with um, homes? Do we start with industry? Is it exports? Is it transport? Like, how do, you, how do we even think about that whole thing? And I guess that was my, my muscle memory of working in software came back. And it's like, well, this is, this is climate to me is a, is a momentum game. You're trying to get things towards tipping points. 
you know, and if you can get have that tipping, once you hit that tipping point, the market takes over, you know, the technology is cheaper than, you know, the, the incumbent technology or people kind of just get excited about it or whatever it is, that generally you can find a tipping point. And, you know, the thing with systems, if you push the right thing at the right moment, you can get a lot further than if you push it at the wrong moment kind of thing. So I think all of that kind of combines this idea of epics where it's like, rather than trying to do everything at once and doing it all badly and have the team all off working on different things, let's all align. We'll choose what's the right topic to be working on right now. Like, let's look at the macro environment. What are the opportunities to make really good progress? Um, we'll pick that topic. We'll build a strategy around it. We'll think about what the short to medium term goals are. Is there a tipping point that we're, that we're aiming for? And then what will it take to actually get there? What are the initiatives we need to do? And then we spend three months uh, looking out for the opportunities to partner uh, with other organisations that can actually execute on those initi initiatives. And that, if it's a non-profit, then great, we can, we can deploy philanthropy. If it's a for-profit, then great, we can invest, we can do a commercial grant, we can lend, you know, we've got lots of different ways that we can help bring that, um, accelerate that. And maybe it needs some attention, you know, we've got Mike... Um, you know, he's got obviously got his incredible profile. Can we can we um, work with Mike to put some attention onto something? You know, can we get the media involved? Can we deploy PR? Um, so the idea is, you know, I always think of um, Ghostbusters. You know, when they cross the stones in Ghostbusters and and you know get that really powerful bolt. How can you how can you cross those streams of philanthropy, investment, and advocacy at the right time to push something towards a tipping point? And you know, a lot of um, philanthropic organizations, you know, they pick a, a theme, like, you know, they want to do homelessness or something. Mm -hmm. And so they build a team around homelessness and they're constantly working on homelessness, you know, forever. And if they want to take something else on, um, you know, they'll build another team around that. And so the more things they want to do, the more teams they have to build, which there's nothing wrong with that approach, just a approach. But we, from the beginning, uh, you know, Mike uh, really wanted Boundless to be a small, agile team. So we don't have the luxury of being able to leave teams on things. But you know what, once you've, you've identified the tipping point and you've identified the right partners, why do we need to stick around? We'll fund it out. We'll fund those partners to do 18 months, two years of work. And then we move on to the next topic and, you know, we can get report backs, whatever, you know, once a quarter, see if it, see if the, if it worked out or not. But, you know, our efforts can then go on to find what's the next um, uh, thing that we need to kind of push to, to get towards a tipping point or to create momentum. And that's, that's what we've been doing for the last year. And so far, it's been working out pretty well. Mm. And I believe one of your epics was on solar energy. Is that, is that right? No. So our first epic was on, on um, electric vehicles and transportation. It's, it's a pretty good example because, you know, that we, we identified from looking around the world that the tipping point for EVs is when 10% of new cars sold are EVs. You know, you have to have an, enough in place um, for the market to really kind of take off when that happens. So UK took, you know, a long time to get to 10%, but then one year later they were at 20%. And this year they're on their way to 40%. Um, same thing happened in New Zealand and in China and California. So our goal was to have Australia hit 10% of new cars sold being EVs by 2024. You know, we had a list of issues of what it would take to get there. So, you know, working with fleet buyers, bringing in, um, you know, cheaper EVs into Australia, um, having um, fuel efficiency standards in place, which only Australia and Russia don't have. Um, so there's a whole list of stuff. And we went out and found amazing partners um, to advocate on behalf of all of those things. We, we um, gave the good car company a line of credit, which helps them bring, um, you know, so what they do is they bring in secondhand EVs from Japan and the UK and sell them in Australia for like twenty dollars to $25,000. And so we help them 10 times the amount of cars they bring into Australia. Um, and then we ran a national EV summit in Canberra. That was the direct advocacy piece, um, which really pushed on fuel efficiency standards. And we had Mike there and we had Robin Denholm, mm -hmm. the chair of Tesla. Uh, we had Chris Bowen, the energy minister, keynote at that. And he announced that the government would move forward with, with fuel efficiency standards. Um, and it was a real moment because he had all the CEOs of the, of the car companies and manufacturers in there. And it really showed the power of this new emerging industry and combined with all the other stuff that we funded that was happening around it at the same time, you know, now you've got this, this huge momentum. So, you know, when we started that epic, Australia was under 2% of new cars sold being EVs. 
Um, now it's, you know, we're recording this, you know, first quarter of um, 2023, where it's six and a half percent. So we're well on track to getting to that 10% by 2024. I wonder if we can go into that how aspect, because I think a lot of people talk about the what of climate, but the how is where the rubber hits the road, no pun intended, <laughs> is um, one of your, I think, roles in your role today as CEO is working with government and you gave some examples of other countries and every country is at a different stage with government in terms of just that first epic you spoke about. For any people, like we've had people like Wyatt Roy and for any people in government or even founders who are wanting to build a business, like people like um, the guys at Sundrive who I interviewed at, at Sunrise, um, Vince Allen, who are doing some really cool stuff in that space. Yeah. Would you have any any learnings from your own experience with government or with regulators around how to get them on board and how to show them the path to solutions? Yeah, well, I mean, I was a pretty naive engineer software dude and I didn't really think, I thought, you know, I used to think the best thing government can do is kind of just get out of the way and we've got all these smart guys that just want to get stuff done kind of thing. And, that you know, government is this slow, you know, bureaucratic beast that can't do anything and how hopeless they are. Um, and, you know, now I've got a much more nuanced view of that and government is, is a really important actor um, in so many ways for almost everything that we do because what government does is is set the rules and business is really good when they know the rules kind of playing to win by those rules but you know if the game if the rules are stacked in the favor you know if we're talking about climate are stacked in the flavor of, of, of in favor of you know buying a diesel car for your business or using gas you know for your factory or you know any, any of those things and that's what business will do because that's that's the um, most efficient cheapest way or the, 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 the most profitable way you know, if the rules are stacked in the other way towards having an electric vehicle or an electric factory or those sorts of things, I mean, that's what that's what business will do. And often those decisions can be pretty arbitrary. And, and you know, the issue in so many things is that, you know, if you're talking about startups or a paradigm shift like, um, you know, climate technology, um, it is it threatens um the businesses and incumbents have been advantaged from the from the rules as they are at the moment. So, sure, it's rational. They're gonna they're gonna fight as hard as they can to keep the rules the same and keep the incentives the same. And so, you can either fight against that and and basically be you know riding your bike into a really strong headwind and working super hard to make minimal gains, or you can get involved in the effort to change those rules and then the headwind turns into a tailwind and your business kind of gets blown forward and everything becomes a lot easier. And the, the perfect example of that is in America at the moment where you had activists and advocates coming together to push for a Green New Deal, so a big climate um, tech incentives package, um, you know, going back for like the last five years. And that culminated in the Inflation Reduction Act um, being passed in America recently, which will literally unlock trillions of dollars of investment in, in climate technologies. And so those businesses that play in that space, you know, they're all booming. Their share prices are boom. They're going to be selling, you know, tons of, of product. They've got this incredible tailwind now, um, you know, that's going to guarantee the success of that industry over the next 20 years. And that, that was uh, that was because of the, of the advocacy efforts and the activists that made that happen. So, you know, I think one of the things that the boundless is going to start thinking about and getting into is how do we close that gap between business and advocacy? Business is great at business. They're not necessarily great at understanding government um, and, and knowing how to advocate for things. Advocate, <laughs> advocates um, and advocacy organisations are great at advocating, but, you know, for, particularly in climate, so much in climate over the last 20 years has been about stopping bad things from happening, like stopping mm. the coal mines or the gas um, you know, the gas extraction sites or all those sorts of things. So they're really good at um, slowing things down and stopping bad things. But now we're entering into this period over the next 20 years where we need to build super fast, get a lot of things done really quickly. And so the advocates need to get better um, at, at working out how to build things, which is much more difficult uh, than stopping things. And business and, 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 and the, the builders um, need to start building bridges um, between them and the advocates. So Boundless is looking at, at that's probably a, a big part of our next epic, which we're calling climate leadership. Mm. We'll, we'll like to bring those two, um, I guess, those two parties together um, for the greater good and, and really teach business a lot more about advocacy and teach the advocates a lot more about business. Mm. 
you touched on an interesting point there with the Inflation Reduction Act. We all know cost of capital is not the same as it was in a zero interest rate world. And one of the skepticisms of EVs could be that because there was zero interest rates, uh, industry like that could flourish because capital was given to that and a company like Tesla could do what they liked because now they've got more guardrails and, and there's more more checks and balances. Do you, do you agree with that view? Do you think there needs to be more capital spent and more leniency almost from banks and regulators to allow for some of these capital intensive industries to flourish? Absolutely. Yeah. And so the question is just the, what's the best way to unlock that capital? And, you know, we can get into all the economics and all that sort of stuff. But ultimately, you know, as a society, we kind of decide what the priorities of where we want to spend money. Like, so we're, we're obviously in, in Australia and we're talking about spending hundreds of billions of dollars on, on submarines, which may be a good idea. I'm not, not, not commenting on whether that's a good idea or, or not. But, you know, when we, when we feel it's important enough, the money's there to, to make it happen. And, you know, I think climate... Um, tech is just one of those no regrets um, investments for for a country. Like you can make individual bad bets and and lose money for sure, but for a country to support that as a as a sector and Australia to um, invest um, you know public money into making Australia a renewable energy superpower and future proofing the country. So whether that needs you know there's no doubt there's going to be lots and lots of private money that goes into the space. You know we've got one of the biggest superannuation sectors in the world. Um, you know, who, are, who, are, who's, who say, you know, they want to be involved in this climate transition. We've got companies like Brookfield coming in and investing billions of dollars to buy out utilities like Origin to turn them into green utilities. So the, the money's there if the, if the government sets the, um, sets the right rules effectively for, for them to come in. But the government itself obviously has huge purchasing power and can, and can, you know, put their hands on the scales to make things happen. And, you know, if I think about... Australia being the world's biggest coal exporter and the world's biggest liquid gas exporter, that's what holds us back in a lot of ways because, you know, we're scared to disrupt that. But actually, we don't get to choose how long those things have a market for, like our customers choose that. If we were the world's biggest typewriter exporters and the personal computer just came out, we'd probably be freaking out. The market's going away. That's that's how we should be feeling at the moment. We're the world's biggest exporter of um, obsolete technologies that are rapidly getting superseded by by new technology it just so happens that we have all the raw materials here to produce those new technologies and we have the the world's best renewable resource to be able to process those things and manufacture things so um why don't we um you know put some of that that money and effort into into building out that those new export industries which are going to replace the current one so sorry that was a super long answer to your question but you know, I think part of my mindset, you know, we we're talking about the malleability of the world is like, you know, when a society prioritizes something enough, it just it just gets it done. You know, we can get into the economics, but there's always ways to make things happen. Mm. Yeah, the great points. Last question before we go to final sprint to close us out is what are some of the promising technologies or business models that you're spending your time just learning about that that we as a society maybe aren't seeing and it's not mainstream, but maybe it's in a pocket of some research somewhere in the world that you find really fascinating in, in climate? Well, what, what I'm really excited about at the moment is so is the epic that we're working on because it's the first epic. So our first epic was electric vehicles. The second one was home electrification. Mm. You know, there's a lot of technical stuff in there. I get it all. I love it all. Heat pumps, all that sort of stuff. You know, I could geek out on that, on that all day. But the epic we're doing at the moment is um, around people and the workforce and effectively how do we get 100,000 new people working in climate in Australia because it's all great influencing government, changing the rules, going really fast, but then suddenly you run out of electricians or, you know, accountants that understand carbon accounting or whatever and, and, you know, you've got to slow down. So we need people to come into this space and there's a whole narrative, I think, that's been built up in Australia that climate jobs are, you know, hammering solar panels down into a field or, you know, the very literal, you know, low paid, um, you know, um, casual kind of jobs where, you know, any job can be a climate job, like as long as you're you're dedicated towards doing stuff better on climate. So, you know, we've been thinking about that. What are the ways to to make that happen in Australia? And it's just taken us down this incredible uh, journey. And I, I can't talk about the investment 
um, that we're looking likely to make on that just yet. But, you know, there is, there is incredible investment opportunities uh, in that space. There's just incredible demand. You know, we, we worked with um, Startmate to announce the mm. um, uh, Climate Fellowship at the Startmate um, at, at Sunrise end of last year. And, um, you know, I think we were, we were thinking, they, they were like, okay, well, if we get 200 people that sign up, we'll run it kind of thing, you know? And so we, we announced it. There wasn't a huge amount of publicity. I think Startmate did one LinkedIn post about it. Um, and, you know, now it turns out they've had over 1,600 people apply for that fellowship. So there's just this huge latent demand. And, you know, if you think about it, once you start thinking about it, it's incredible because, you know, you think about someone that's coming out of school that wants to get involved in climate, you know, maybe they're good at maths or whatever. They'll go to the career counsellor. They'll talk about engineering or whatever. And they'll go to university and they'll study engineering. They'll go through this whole process without actually talking that much about climate. You know, we, we're going to you just go through your normal vocational um, path and you come out and you get a job and then maybe you just get some, some normal job and you've always got this passion for climate, but it just hasn't been touched. Like, why wouldn't you, your career counsellor be talking to you about climate? Why wouldn't the university offer climate as an entry point, um, which you could then go and decide whether you want to do accounting in climate or engineering in climate, whatever. Like, I think all of society needs to kind of um, be a lot more, um, you know, make it a lot easier for people to, to, to follow that career path because that's what we need. It's going to be really well paid. It's going to be really fulfilling. Um, and, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's not that easy at the moment. You know, if you want to get into climate, you've got to have a thousand coffees with people and find your place. So we're, we're, we're doing some really interesting stuff to try and change that. Um, and we're looking to run a, a big climate jobs fair in Melbourne um, uh, later on this year. So stay posted when we, when we launch and announce that. But, yeah, there's lots of, lots of really exciting stuff. So that's what I'm energised about. So it's not really a technology persuade, per se, but um, just getting throwing a lot more human ingenuity and, and um, manpower at it. Is, um, is what's exciting me right now. Love it. I, I couldn't agree more. I think climate and the other one that I think a lot about is healthcare. I think these yep. are the two areas. I mean, that is also human sustainability. So it sort of is in that similar space. I spend a lot of time in that space learning about it. I mean, some of the founders building businesses there. And to your point, the capital going in is is just exciting. And it's, it's energizing to see that move away from some of the traditional businesses that have been built for years and even I think the relevance of AI will be really interesting there which could kind of reduce some of that admin load and focus more on execution so very exciting yeah we've got a few minutes left Eitan so I'd love to close with a quick rapid fire sprint is there one investment you've made that you consider the best in your life non-financial uh well my favorite um well I mean financially my best ever investment was probably in um in Tesla early on (laughs) Um, Me too. <laughs> <laughs> but my current favorite personal um, investment is in a company called Infravision that does drone stringing of um, transmission lines. And is there a non-financial investment, whether it's a holiday or a course or family? Ah, yeah. I mean, I did. I did start into. I mean, I'm really great at starting postgrad courses, but I'm not finishing them because I get too excited <laughs> and I want to just start working. Yeah. Space. But I did start a master's in sustainability in 2009, and um, the guy that taught it, Frank Fisher, who's sadly passed away since then, um, he was just this wild man, you know. And he and he he came. He even said, like, when we started the course, my aim for this course is for you to go out wilder than what you came in. And, you know, he just blew your mind with all this stuff. And I just found myself walking around the streets, you know, looking at people driving cars on their own and just like you're just looking at the world with fresh eyes about how insane it is, this, this world that we've created and how it's got to change. So that really kind of propelled me down that, down that climate path. So that was definitely a worthwhile mm. investment in my time. One thing you'd like to learn in the next six months? Ooh. Well, I think that... that Topic that we were talking about, how do we bring business and activists together? What does a climate movement look like um, for the next 10 years? Do we even need to have, you know, I, I think about the suffragettes and how there was a movement um, to get women the right to vote, um, which doesn't exist anymore because it just there's probably not a single person in Australia that would say that women shouldn't have the right to vote. But that was a really live topic and debate. You know, people went to jail, people did, did civil resistance um, to, to, to help make that happen. How do we get to that step in climate where there doesn't need to be a separate climate movement? Because just it'd be so obvious and so bedded in to everything that we do. Um, so that's what I'm looking to learn as we build the strategy around that, how we can get towards that. 
one thing you've learned from the concept of sedaka? I think you've ever pronounced it correctly. How has that influenced your work with climate? Um, well, I mean, you know, when we sold um, out where my wife and I set up a small foundation with, with um, some of the money from that, and so we've been giving um, to, to various climate-related projects. And, you know, I think that, that, I mean, that was invaluable experience for me, you know, as a precursor to Boundless because, um, you know, giving is in a lot of ways, you know, actually that combination of, of learning to give at the same time that I was learning to invest um, and, and seeing the similarities and differences between those things, particularly in the VC space. So investing in, a, in an early idea, um, you know, looking, look, assessing the potential of something, you know, understanding the founder, the founder team, you know, th- those things have a lot of things um, in parallel and just really understanding the power of giving and, and um, that not everything that uh, can make a big difference in the world has to be dollar related necessarily or about making money. You can have huge impacts, you know, in, in lots of other ways. So, I'm, I mean, that, that it seems obvious now when you, when you say it, but I think it is something you have to really learn and understand by through, that, through the act of giving of what you can achieve um, with that giving to really understand the power of what, what people can create beyond just making money. Mm. We, had, we had Daniel Petri on the show a couple of weeks ago and he spoke about Start Giving and some of the cool things they're doing there in an agnostic space. Last question, Nathan, is is there one quote, a person that inspires you? Um, yes, the quote that I uh, often give, I don't, I don't know how inspiring it is, but I think about it a lot, is that I think, I don't know if Oscar Wilde really said it, but, you know, I wrote you a long letter because I didn't have the time to write something short. Yes. Um, and it's, you know, often, you know, in Boundless, you know, we, we, we go to, uh, you know, to, to Mike to, you know, at the end of an epic, we package the whole thing together, you know, we present it and, and we get approval um, to deploy the funds. And, yeah, how do you get a really complex thing we've been working on for three months and communicate it in a way that's straightforward and, and understandable and gets to the heart of what it is that you're doing? Um, like, to me, that's a, a critical um, skill in, you know, and it leads to, to your ability to do so many things. Like people think of that as just a small kind of thing, but you know, there's, there's, there'd be decisions worth billions of dollars that have rested on, did somebody um, describe this you know, efficiently in a way that's easily understood or not? And we've all had experiences where you get these like massive documents that you can't understand um, what they've said at the end of it. So you know, to me but, and, and my team, it's always about how do you get condensed information into the, the shortest possible, really, to easy to understand format, um, and it just makes everyone's life easier and it makes the world go faster. So, yeah, don't know how inspirational it is, but I think it's it's it's, pr- it's practical. Uh, one thing that I talk a lot about is don't write me an essay, send me bullet points, stuff like that. Yeah. I think is so example because it's easy to just put a block of text, and it's harder to distill that into two bullet points. And I'm sure. That's something you and Caro think a lot about with some of the epics you're doing. So very cool. That's the finish line, Eitan. Thank you so much for joining me. I love doing this. Thanks. That was really fun. I hope you took away some actual insights and learnings from this conversation to apply to your life and continue to be 1% better. If you're enjoying the show, I'd love to hear from you. You can either share a rating or review on your podcast app or contact me directly via email or any of our social media pages. All links are in the show notes. Talk soon.